Thank you, Tom and musicians, for leading us into the time of worship and preparing our hearts to meditate upon the cross, upon the beauty of the cross. We are less than a week before focusing on the death, on the pain, on the suffering that Christ has endured on our behalf. Uh, this Sunday is, is known in the Christian calendar as the as a Palm Sunday, the day which commences a final week before the ultimate sacrifice of our Lord. This week I would like to do something different than we are usually accustomed to do on Palm Sunday, something different than talking about the entry that Jesus had made into Jerusalem. Because the last few weeks, last month, in the month of April, we have talked about uh, the sacrifices and the meanings that Christ's death has for us. And especially we have talked about the meaning of propitiation, a very hard doctrine, a very hard teaching. Today I would like for us to focus on one final implication of that, try to, to tie some loose ends of what we have been talking about last two or three weeks, and, uh, and prepare our hearts as we begin this final week of, of Easter uh, prepare our hearts to really understand what has happened on the cross. Now, two weeks ago, we focused on the fact that the death of Christ averted the wrath of God. It did not just wipe away sin. Remember, if you were here two weeks ago, we said to wipe away the sin, which is a concept taught in Scripture in numerous places, is a word that is known as expiation, to wipe away the sin. But the death of Christ did not only wipe away the sin, did not only expiate, it did something more, it did something to God Himself, namely, it averted the wrath of God. And that word we call propitiation. We saw last week, one implication of that is found in the whole notion of the difficulty of forgiveness for God. That God, when He forgives, He doesn't just forgive as we are accustomed to think about. Because He is not only a God who is love, who loves us, He's also a holy God. And how do you combine God's desire to forgive us and at the same time His inability to simply let sin go away? And we saw last week that for God, divine forgiveness is only possible because of the payment that is required. Today, I would like to continue the themes that we pursued in these last two weeks and, and try to wrap it together in what might be the one word that we can describe when we think about the death of Jesus, the death of Christ. And let me say one thing, one word. That one word is substitution. Substitution. Now, let me say something about the whole concept of... When we talked about two weeks ago about propitiation... One way, one way in which it is used in our Bible, translated in some versions, is the word atonement. And I know some of you, you told me that you looked it up in the, on the internet and tried to do more understanding of what that means. And sometimes the word atonement is used instead of propitiation. But let me, let me make sure we understand the language we talk about. The reason why I did not talk about atonement is because atonement can often be used as the general word for everything that has to do with the death of Christ. Whereas in the way we have used it in the last two weeks has been more in the sense of averting the wrath of God. But sometimes in Christian circles you might hear this phrase, substitutionary atonement. And it's a very fit word, a word that we can use and we will be using it today. I would like to talk about why is substitution such a crucial category for us. Why is it important? Why is Christ's death substitutionary? You think that most Christians today would accept this reality, that Christ died for us as a substitution. But as we will see, we have to realize that is not the case. Not every Christian, not every believer would, would openly and gladly receive and accept the reality that Christ died for us as a substitution. So today I want us to go and talk over and talk about why is substitution such a crucial concept. 
Would you open Scripture to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. The title of today's message is Substitutionary Atonement. And I know these words are hard. We may not use them in our daily language, but we have to know the concept. We have to know the truth they teach. Now, I will be reading this passage, even though it's not a perfect paragraph. It, the idea that Paul begin, that Paul has here really begins with uh, verse 11, but I will simply be reading from verse 17. And here's the words of the Lord through the Apostle Paul for all of us today. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word for our hearts. Would you bow our heads and let's ask the Lord to bless this word and bless our hearts. Let's pray. Father, our words are too weak. Our words are too superficial to express what we ought to express, what we would like to express, our gratitude and thanksgiving for the substitution that you have done in Christ on our behalf. Lord, I pray for this word. I pray for, for our hearts. I pray that you open our minds as it is a difficult subject. It's a difficult theme to, to understand. But Lord, I pray and I trust that your word will be powerful in our midst today. In the name of Jesus, I pray through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, some of you may have realized about the way I, I try to preach, that every time I, I try to open the Word, I, I put value in understanding every passage in its context and, and emphasizing, trying to get the main point, the main theme that the, the author would have for us. Now, sometimes... An author would develop not only the main theme, the main point, but sometimes he would also elaborate on some sub-points. And uh, sometimes we have to focus on those sub-points. And today, I really want us to realize that this passage is one of those passages in which the main point is not substitution. The main point is a theme of reconciliation. But Paul develops in this theme of reconciliation that appears in this passage, he develops two other themes. And the first one is a theme of new creation. In verse 17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But then in verse 19 and then verse 21, he talks about the notion of substitution. And today, I would like to focus on the notion of substitution, not because the other two are unimportant, but because it is such a debated issue. It is one understanding in the Christian faith that is highly debated, and many people today no longer believe that Christ's death for us was a death of substitution. So today, I would like to explore and, and talk about the meaning of substitution. Then I would li like to address the definition of substitution and the theories that are alternative to it, then thirdly, I'd like to talk about the reasons for substitution. And finally, the benefits of substitution. Why is it important for us to cling to a substitutionary view of atonement? Let me begin with, before we go into defining substitutionary atonement, let me begin with some theories of how the church has understood the meaning of the death of Jesus throughout the history of the church. And these meanings are not wrong meanings. They're, every one of them 
finds a biblical reason behind them. Let me read, let me describe some of these meanings, and then at the end we'll try to, to wrap it up and move to why substitution is a crucial, uh, a crucial meaning of atonement. At the very beginning, one of the, few, one of the meanings that was given to the death of Jesus was that the death of Jesus had a ransoming feature. And this, the, the first theory about the death of Jesus was the ransom theory, that the death of Jesus accomplished our ransom, that it was a commercial transaction that took place between God and somebody else. And we will see that the early church fathers quickly asked asked the question, well, who did God make this transaction with? Who did God pay to rescue us, to ransom us? And one of the first answers that was given, especially in the first centuries of the church, was that the transaction happened between God and Satan, because we were enslaved to the kingdom of darkness, to Satan himself, and that somehow Jesus was the ransom God gave Jesus and allowed him to die, but in this process, Satan was tricked. He did not know that Jesus has the power to raise from the dead and to come back to life, and in this way, God had tricked Satan. Well, this is a ransom theory. Is there biblical valid, val- validity for the fact that Jesus' death is a ransom? Absolutely. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that the Son of Man has come not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. The problem, though, came quickly when we realized that Satan could not be the one to whom God paid the ransom, because that means Satan was stronger than God that Satan somehow had ownership of, over, over us, and, and that clearly had some biblical problems. While that theory, the ransom theory, was abandoned, in recent times there was another notion, a, a, another theory that came about that sort of tagged along, piggybacked on, um, on, on the notion of ransom, and that was the motif of victory. Uh, Gustav Aulin uh, thought and said that Christ death was really a victory. When God paid ransom to, to, to whoever, it was not simply a commercial transaction. Give me this so I get my people back. It was more of God just overcome, had overcome the devil and had won the victory over him. So there is no legal transaction between God and Satan. It was purely an, a victory over him. That's the Christ, Christus victor motif, the victory concept. Again, is that biblically based? Is there a biblical foundation for that? Absolutely. That in the death of Jesus, God has overcome death and the power of darkness and the power of sin. Another theory, a theory that was developed in the 12th century, uh, is is named the, the moral influence theory. And the moral influence says that the only barrier between fellowship with God uh, and the salvation that, uh, with men lies in the fact that men are simply estranged from God. They're separate from God. They're, they're sinners. They, they live different lives. They, sin and, and, and holiness cannot work together. But the problem is that simply men and their moral capacity is weakened. And therefore, a man named uh, Abelard uh, has come up with this view that the death of Jesus is, is pretty much a moral influence on us. The death of Jesus teaches us how to live good lives so that we can live rightly before God. It's the moral influence that Christ's death affects our morality. Well, is there some biblical warrant for that? Absolutely. Uh, the scripture teaches us to learn from the sufferings that Christ has done for us and the sufferings that Christ had on the cross and live righteously. There is a, a moral implication that the cross has on us. Is that the only implication? Absolutely not. A, a modern theory of this view of a moral influence was the example theory that Christ's death, his death on the cross, serves for us as an example of how we ought to love each other. Look at the way God showed His love for us and 
His death on the cross should be an example for us of how we should show love to each other. Is that, does that find some biblical support? Absolutely. Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, and he was the prime, the, the greatest example of what it means to love enemies. Is that the only explanation? Absolutely not. A, another theory, and probably the one that has been most debated, see all these other ones that I mentioned to you, they have been widely accepted, and, uh, and people did not have that much trouble with them. But the one theory that has caused a lot of ridicule, a lot of criticism, and non-acceptance has been the view, the satisfaction theory. Anselm of Canterbury, St. Anselm of Canterbury in the 12th century, said that in our sin, we have offended God's honor. And because God is a holy God, we have offended God himself. And in the death of Jesus, what Jesus had provided for us was the satisfaction of God's honor, of God's wrath. And this notion of satisfaction, even though had been the reformers, Luther and Calvin, said, well, it is not just the honor of God that was offended. It was more his justice, his character. God, God's person, personal being, had been offended by our sin. And when we talk about the death of Jesus, he satisfied the offense that sin had caused against God himself. This notion of, of, of satisfaction has been seriously ridiculed and criticized by many people throughout church history. But friends, as we saw two weeks ago, unless we realize that sin affects God himself, not just a moral law of God, not just, it does not affect just our moral being, it does not affect just Satan, it affects God himself. That's why the notion of satisfaction is critical when we understand the meaning of the cross. But as we try to understand these ideas, the theories of atonement, what I'd like to point to you to say, one major aspect of this idea of satisfaction is that the only way God was able to satisfy or the wrath of God was able to be satisfied is by God himself taking care of it, by God taking upon himself the penalty that was required because it is, it's, it's like this. If I offend just a man out on the street, my offense to him is based on who this person is. If, he's, if he is just a man and uh, I just offend him, I have to deal with him where, where he is. But if I offend the president of a country, if I offend the, the, the position that a person has and his influence, my offense is not simply to him at, this, at his status, but my offense has a bigger implication given that his position is much greater. And when we offended God, we did not simply offend the creation. We offended the creator. And because of that, our offense was tremendously, tremendously great. And only a creator could figure out a way to appease the offense that has been done against him. That's why the notion of substitution, man himself, man by himself could not figure out the penalty, could not pay the penalty to God, to the creator, because the penalty was way greater than man could pay. That's why the creator himself had to come and pay the penalty. And this is, what, this is where we get ourselves into understanding the notion of substitution. God had to substitute himself in order to take care of this penalty. Now, when we talk about the notion of substitution, the definition of substitution is, is very simple. One person taking the place of another. Those of you who are in the, in the teaching system, whether it's public or private, you know there's a term we use often of a substitute teacher. A substitute teacher is a teacher who is ready to take the place of another teacher should the permanent teacher be sick or call in that something happened and he, she, he or she cannot show up to class. And a school system would have a list of substitute teachers who are always on call and ready 
to come in and teach a lesson should the permanent teacher not be able to do it. Substitute teacher. The notion of substitution is not hard for us to understand. The problem is that when we turn it into understanding substitution for what God had done in Christ, people have a hard time with it. Now, here's, here's how some people want to redefine the notion of substitution. There are some Christians that would say, okay, I can, I can understand Christ or God substituted himself for me, but here's how they redefine it. One, uh, one particular theologian in the 19th century um, by the name of Horace Bushnell said, Christ bore our pain, but not our penalty. That Christ really was our substitute to bear our pain, but not our penalty. Another, another redefinition of substitution is that Christ took upon himself our penitence, our confession of sin, but not our penalty of sin. There are people today who have a hard time with the fact that God, when he substituted for us, he really substituted for our penalty. They would try to recreate that, that Christ substituted for our suffering, but not our penalty. When we come to understanding the notion of substitution, we have to de- define that the death of Christ is not simply a substitution, but it's a particular kind of substitution. It's a substitution for our penalty. And that's why you may have heard the phrase, penal substitution. The word penal comes from the word, word, uh, word penalty. That when Christ substituted for us, he really substituted for our penalty. Now, why do people have a hard time with this concept? Because they do not want to think that we deserve God's penalty. The notion of penalty is hard for people to accept. And that's why it's hard for them to accept the fact that Christ's death was a death for our penalty. Now, are there biblical reasons why we should hold to a penal substitution definition? Absolutely. Look at Romans 6.23. Remember that well-known verse, for the wages of sin is death. It doesn't say the pain of sin is death. It doesn't say the penitence of sin is death. It says the wages of sin is death. There is, there's a penalty. And then we look at Romans uh, 8, 28, in which Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The natural consequence of sin is not simply, the, is not simply suffering, is not simply pain, it's not simply the social consequences of our sins, although there are many. One reality of, one consequence of our sin is the fact that we stand condemned before a holy God. So Paul says, when we are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When we think of substitution, we have to think that Christ substituted not simply for our pain so that we don't die on the cross. Not simply so that we don't experience suffering. That is a very, listen folks, that is a very egoistic, self-centered view of our suffering. Oh, he, he took our pain so we don't have to suffer. No, he took our penalty. He took upon himself the condemnation that God, a righteous God had against sin. So when we talk about substitutionary atonement, we have to understand that what we mean by it is the substitution Christ has done for our penalty. Now you say, what are the reasons? Not only, what are the reasons that substitution is, is really there in Scripture? How do we know that substitution is in the Bible? Because like I said, people today would rather think about Jesus' death as a, an exemplary death, as a death that simply teaches us how to, show, how to love each other, or as a death that just has an effect on our moral character, but does not have an effect on God himself. God has substituted himself. What are the reasons for this? The notion of substitution appears in the Bible prior to the giving of the law. 
it appears first time the most clearly in Scripture in the story of Abraham when God had asked Abraham to bring Isaac, his son, as a sacrifice. Do you remember the story? God appeared in, in a dream to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to bring your son, your only beloved son, as a sacrifice on a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham, and, and we cannot fully comprehend what was going on in Abraham's heart and mind as he was trying to make sense, why is God asking me to do this? And perhaps the, the climax of the feelings that have, have come in, in, in Abraham's heart as he took the journey with Isaac came in the moment when, when him and Isaac were, were climbing the mountain and at, at one point in the journey, the boy is smart enough and realizes, Father, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Can you imagine what was going on in Abraham's heart and mind? Hebrews chapter eleven nineteen tells us that, that Abraham believed that God had the power to raise his son from the dead. But what was going on in this, in this father's heart and soul as he was thinking not only about what will transpire, what ought to happen, but how do you respond to this question? Father, here's... Here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, in, 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 in the spear of the moment, I think inspired by, by the Holy Spirit of God, responded the word, Son, God will provide for himself the lamb. And sure enough, we know the rest of the story how God allowed Abraham to tie his son, to put him on the altar, and and, and raise his hand to come and, and, and sacrifice his son. And, and it was at that final moment that God intervened and said, Abraham, stop! And God had provided indeed the lamb. Why? Because God's nature, something in, God's, in, in Abraham's view of God, said God will provide a substitute. And then we go to the story of, of the Exodus. A few few hundreds of years later, when Israel is in captivity and God decides it's time for Israel to be brought out. And Moses bring, comes to the people, and, and after the nine plagues, Moses tells the people to take a lamb. And again, this is before the law is given, before the sacrificial system is set in place. Moses says to the people, God will visit his people. The angel of death will visit the land of Egypt. And every house will be affected by the death of the firstborn. But God is providing a lamb and he's asking every family to take the, a lamb of, of one year, to slaughter it, to sacrifice it, and the blood of that lamb to be sprinkled on the doorposts of each home. And the home which will have the blood on its doorposts, in that home, for that dwelling place, when the angel of death will see it, he will not enter. He will not kill the firstborn. He will pass over that house. That's why in the history of, of the Old Testament, that sacrifice remained to be known as the Passover. And the lamb that was sacrificed was called the Passover lamb. The notion was, the idea was, that instead of the firstborn being killed and, and dying, the death of that lamb, of that Passover lamb, would qualify instead of the person who was supposed to be killed. The notion of substitution appears strongly in the Passover because you see, for the first time, somebody's, an animal's life is slaughtered in order that another person might actually live. Substitution. And then, of course, you have the sacrificial system with, with all the sacrifices and especially the Day of Atonement in which Jews were instructed by God to bring different sacrifices for different kinds of sins, for different kinds of situations, so that the blood of the, of the lambs, the blood of the animals would atone for the sins of the people. Substitution. And throughout the Old Testament as we reach the, the book of, of 
Isaiah in chapter 53, when we, when we see the, the, the servant of the Lord who will carry, who will suffer, endure instead of the people. Then, of course, you come to the New Testament. The notion of substitution appears in a number of passages, but today I, we just read the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, because this is one of those passages that hits and talks about substitution in the most clear and direct way. And can I ad- address your, or, or point your attention to verse 19? Look at the way verse 19 talks about substitution. It starts, first of all, in, in which it sa- God says, not counting their sins against them. Now remember, we said two weeks ago that God cannot simply ignore sin. God cannot simply stop counting our sin against ourselves. He can't just stop considering sin and, and pretending like sin is not there. Payment had to be done. And, and look at the way verse 21 describes how is it that God did not count their sins against them. Verse 21, because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's why nowhere is the concept of substitution more clearly expressed than in this context. God made Christ to be sin in our place. That's the reason why God did not count our sin against us. Because God made Christ to be sin in our stead. That's why I remember last week we said there is no forgiveness without penalty. Now the intent of this was that we might receive what Christ alone has. And, And let me say the following. Some of you may say, how is it that Christ was made sin for us? I thought Christ is sinless. He's perfect. How can Christ be made sin? Is it possible for the Son of God to be made sin? John Stott, one of the well-known theologians that, that, that we have today, said the following, What was transferred to Christ was not moral qualities of our sin, but the legal consequences of our sin. You see, Christ was not made sinful. Because Christ remains sinless. Yet God made him to be sin in the sense of he put on him all the legal consequences of sin. That's why, that's how Christ was able to be our substitute and he was made to be our sin. But notice, the result of that is that God gave us, made us to be his righteousness. Look at the way verse 21 ends so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, friends, in the substitution of God, two transactions happen, a negative one and a positive one. Negatively speaking, Christ took our sin. He was made sin for us. He took away our sin. Positively, He gave us His righteousness. As Christ took away our sin, God also gave us, in Christ, His righteousness. Two transactions happen in this great substitution. And just like what was transferred to Christ was not the moral qualities of our sin, likewise, what was transferred to us was not the moral righteousness, but the legal righteousness. And that's why, friends, when we talk about the fact that when we become Christians, God had justified us. He had made made us be righteous, not in any moral sense. We are still the same sinful people with the same sinful habits. But He is conferring upon us, sinful people, the righteousness of God, just as He had conferred on Christ, the sinless person, all our sin. It is the legal consequences that have been transferred to us. And from from the moment of regeneration, from the moment in which we become believers, God starts looking at us, not simply to our moral life, but to our legal status. And our legal status is no longer condemned, but is now righteous, is now justified, 
Why? Have something changed in our moral life? No, nothing. We're still the same old people. But from this point on, God looks at us through Christ. And because of that, He is giving us, He's imputing upon us, He's he's transferring to us His righteousness. Now, you say, hold on, Pastor, why does this have any impact on me? How does this have any impact on me? Here's one major reason. Every time we see in the New Testament the commands to be in a certain way, to be godly, to be holy, to live righteously, the commands always are preceded by the fact that we have been saved. Always the indicative verbs precede the imperatives. Paul oftentimes would talk about the salvation God has given us, and then he would say, therefore, live rightly. Therefore, do so. The call for us to live rightly, to live righteously, is not so that we might be considered righteous in the sight of God. No at all. We are called to live rightly because God has already considered us righteous. God is simply saying, and the apostles simply say, because God has conferred upon us the righteousness of Christ, legally we are considered righteous even though daily, every day we sin. But because God has considered us righteous, it is on that foundation that now the New Testament calls us to live our daily lives based on that foundation. It is not the other way around. And in a, in a very legalistic way, sometimes people think, well, in order for God to consider me righteous, I got to live up righteously. Wrong! If you and I think that God's righteousness is conferred upon us based on whether or not we live righteously, you are living according to a false gospel. God considers us righteous purely and only because of the sacrifice and the substitution of Christ. Therefore, when we talk about living rightly, does that mean that, okay, if, if, if God does not consider us righteous based on how we live, does that give us a license to sin? Absolutely not. Because once you understand what God has done in Christ, once you understand substitution, once you understand what, what Christ has done for us, you do not want to go back and use that as a license to sin more. Apostle Paul, the other apostles, James and Peter, always go, goes back, they all go back to this reality. Because God has considered us and given us his righteousness, therefore we are called to live righteously. You know what implications that has for me and you? When we, when we fall into a particular sin, sometimes it's a, and the Holy Spirit will be there to convict us, to bring attention and, and to, to lead us to repentance. But sometimes we fall into this notion that when I sin, God will view me less righteously and less favorably and will, is ready to, to stay there and punish me because I have lived less than his righteousness. Friends, we have to realize whenever we fall in our sinful patterns, our sinful conduct, God's view of our righteousness does not change. God has, is, and will always view our righteousness in light of Christ. Now, our conformity to the image of Christ is going up and down. But our legal status as righteous before God does not change. And when you and I fall into that sinful pattern, rather than trying to be afraid and always pushing the, the encounter with God to say, oh, I, I, I failed God, I, I, I don't have the courage to go back to Him and ask for repentance, I, I don't know if God will forgive me because I did it again. And you think, you, you think of, of those lines in, the, in, that, in that song, I did it again, right? And rather than that leading you to go back to God, it pushes you from returning to God. And you're trying to see and, and think, 
well, I just got to work my way up to God. I just got to prove him that I'm a good person. I just got to prove him that, that he really should consider me righteous because I, I really live a righteous life. No, my friend. God's view of our righteousness is always going to be in light of the sacrifice of Christ, of the fact that he substituted himself for us. Substitution is critical. Justification is critical. And the way we live our daily lives should always be done on that foundation. Now let, me, let, me re, let me lead into two other benefits of, of, of substitution. Why should penal substitution matter to us? Why should we fight for it? And, and why should we emphasize it in our beliefs? And here, here are the reasons. Unless we understand the cross as a penal substitution, we will not understand the majesty of the God, holiness of God who reacts with wrath against all rebellion. We will not understand the God of holiness who reacts in rebellion against sin. Number two, unless we understand penal substitution, we will not understand the magnitude of our sin. Our sin triggers penalty. That's just the way it is. Number three, unless we understand penal substitution, we will not understand the deep love of God who substituted himself through the Son in our place. Number four, unless we understand penal substitution, we will not understand the true essence of salvation. You see, friends, salvation is not simply a rescue operation. Salvation is not simply God rescuing us. Salvation is about the act of God substituting himself on our behalf. John Owen uh, said the following, We ourselves have done nothing of what was imputed to us, nor Christ anything of what is imputed to him. You see, friends, salvation, the essence of salvation is the notion of substitution. And can I point you to this, the following reality? The essence of sin is also substitution. The essence of sin is also substitution. Remember the Garden of Eden? What is it that man, Adam and Eve, were tempted to do to take the place of God? And remember the fall of Lucifer? If Isaiah 14 is, is really reflective of what happened before creation, when Lucifer was thrown out of, out of heaven, why was it? Because an attempt to take the place of God. The essence of all sin is substitution. It's taking the place that is due to God alone, the honor that is due to God alone, taking it to ourselves, putting ourselves instead of God. Focusing on ourselves instead of focusing on God. The essence of, of sin is substitution. But the essence of salvation is also substitution. That's why in, in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, the, th the theme of, of new creation and reconciliation is so intricately woven with the notion of substitution. Remember where the first substitution took place? in the Garden of Eden. And because of that substitution, the entire human nature, the entire human race has been corrupted. But another substitution had to take place. This time, it was not man trying to substitute himself in the place of God. This time, it was man, God, substituting himself in the place of man. That's why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. When Christ is, is substituting himself on your behalf for you, you do become a new creation. And that's why the Garden of Eden and the notion of reconciliation, the notion of redemption is so intricately woven in this concept of substitution. The essence of salvation is substitution. The essence of sin is substitution. John Stott said the following, 
Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Where is that? On the cross. Penal substitution. Unless we understand it, unless we cherish it, unless we cling to it, we will not understand the nature of sin. We will not understand the nature of salvation. Father Maximilian Kolbe was a Catholic priest and a prisoner of the Auschwitz concentration camp. On August 14, 1941, a particular prisoner escaped from the camp. And the rule in the camp was that if a particular prison, any prisoner escapes, ten other prisoners will be killed. This way, it was a, a, a means of which the, the Germans tried to make sure that the prisoners themselves don't, don't, uh, don't come up with a plan of escape and don't help each other to escape. It was a, a magnificent way of, of keeping everybody afraid and making sure that they watch over each other so nobody escapes. Well, on August 14, 1941, one prisoner did escape and he was not found. So ten others were randomly selected in order to be condemned for death. The tr- one, the, all, all prisoners trembled and, and feared, but one in particular just couldn't help but start crying in anguish. And his name was Franciszek Gajanovic. And Franciszek started crying. He just couldn't help it. Uh, my, my poor wife, my poor children, what will they do? And he just, as he was selected and, and taken with the other nine prisoners to be executed, he just, he just couldn't help but sob. And out of the other prisoners, an, an old man came forward and went to the, one of the commanders, one of the captains, and his name, his name was Maximilian Colby, a Catholic priest. He went to the, the commandant and said, I am a Catholic priest. Let me take his place. I'm old. I'm alone. Nobody's dependent on me. But this man has a wife, has children. Let me take his place. And the commander agreed. And he was sentenced along with the other nine to death by starvation. The execution was made. He was put aside in a, in a cell with the other nine prisoners. And the Catholic priest died. Instead of this man by the name of Franciszek Gajanovic. Gajanovic survived the prison. And on March 13, 1995, this is 15 years ago, Franciszek Gajanovic died at the age of 95, 53 years after Father Colby had saved him. But he has never forgotten the ragged monk. Every year on August 14th, he went back to Auschwitz. And he spent the the 53 years going back every year to pay homage to Father Colby and honored him for the decision of taking his place. On October of 1982, Franciszek Gajanovic, his wife, children, and grandchildren gathered with 150,000 other believers in St. Peter's Square in Rome to celebrate Father Colby's victory over hatred at Auschwitz. Another survivor of the Auschwitz concentration camp described the effect that the action of this priest had on the entire camp. And he said this, it was an enormous shock to the whole camp. We became aware that someone amongst us in the spiritual dark night of the soul was raising the standard of love on high. Someone unknown to us, like everyone else, tortured at bereft of name and social, social standing, went to a horrible death for the sake of someone not even related to him. Therefore, it is not true, we cried. 
that humanity is cast down and trampled in mud, overcome by oppressors and overwhelmed by hopelessness. Thousands of prisoners were convinced the true world continued to exist and that our tortures would not be able to destroy the world. He said, to say that Father Colby died for us or for that person's family is too great a simplification. His death was the salvation of thousands. We were stunned by his act, which became for us a mighty explosion of light in the dark camp. If the self-substitution of a Catholic priest had such an impact not only for Franciszek Gajanovic, but for all the prisoners of Auschwitz, how much more the self-substitution of God had an effect on the whole world. John 3.16 says, "For, For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, my friend, substitution is the essence of salvation. And until we come to grips with that reality, we will not understand our sin. We will not understand the God who loved us, the God who rescued us, the God who gave himself for our own sin. If you're a believer today and you have heard this message and say, what does this mean to me? What should I take away from this message of substitution? Here's, what, here's a challenge for all of us, for, for all of us who are believers. Substitution is a daily reality in our lives. Whether we experience the substitution of the Garden of Eden or the substitution that took place in a, different, in a different garden, on a different hill, on a different tree, substitution is a daily experience. You either substitute yourself for the place of God or you allow God to substitute himself in your place. You either live your daily life in light of, the, of your own substitution for the place of God or you live your life in the substitution that God has provided for you and for me. Can I ask you as a believer, which substitution do you practice? Which substitution do you have in front of you as you live your daily life? As we approach this Easter, as we approach the meaning of the death of Jesus, the centrality of the gospel is that God substituted himself for our penalty. But if you're not a believer... If you have never come to grips with what God has done for us in our stead, today is a day when you can accept the substitution of God himself for our behalf, on our behalf, for us. At the end of the service, we'll have a time of reflecting, of, of, of coming before the Lord and asking him to really work in our own hearts the substitution that he has procured for us in the death of Jesus. And if you're here today and you have never experienced that substitution, if you've you've never experienced living life in light of the substitution of God for you in your stead, I want to give you an opportunity and an invitation today to respond to that. Let's bow our heads and pray.